me in the face and instead of saying something like, oh, that's okay that you believe that. Or, no, he looked at me and said, young man, who taught you that heresy? Who taught you that you could be justified by grace through faith alone and that your own works are not a necessary part of salvation? Well, that is the issue, is it not? The issue is, for him, was not so much, he, he understood he was a sinner, he understood he had committed sins, but he was certain that his good works, and seemingly they were many, correct? He was there caring for his wife, he'd been faithful to her for over 50 years, he was pouring out his life for her, seemingly anyway, providing for her, and yet he was as far from the kingdom of God as the worst murderer. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. And if you'll stand, I'll be reading verses 12 through 17, Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Please be seated. When I was a youth pastor in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, several years ago, I I had the privilege of doing a lot of uh, rest home ministry, and we would oftentimes go in and, and minister not only to those who were there, but also to family members who would come and be ministering to their family members who were in the rest home. And I remember one particular, uh, when we went every month, and we went for about nine years while I was there, and for several years, right as we began, there was a, uh, uh, an elderly lady who was bedridden, who they would wheel her out, and she would come out, and, and she wasn't real conscious, and yet she each time they'd wheel her out to come and to hear the music and to hear the ministry, and Almost without fail, her husband was there, and I believe they'd been married over well over 50 years, and he would come and he would sit with her and minister to her and care for her and, and just, just provide for her, just, just loved her. And I remember I engaged him in conversation one time and, and found out that he was a Catholic, that he had been raised in the Catholic Church, and that he was committed to the Catholic religion. And so over several months, we had the opportunity to interact a bit, and finally we got, it was, it was probably the fourth or fifth time that I'd interacted with him, and, and we began to discuss the nature of salvation and how one truly comes to know Christ and how one will have their entrance into heaven secured, as it were. And as we began to have the discussion, he, he quickly pointed to Christ. He said Christ is certainly part of salvation, but also the good works that we do. And certainly it is necessary that we provide good works so that we might be able to enter into heaven. Who could enter into heaven without good works? And 
I said, well, the Bible is clear that there is no one who can do any truly good work apart from Christ, and there is no merit of any work that we do apart from Him, and there is no, God counts, accounts, no merit for our own work, only for Christ's, and therefore we are justified by grace through faith alone. And there is, there is no good work that we could ever do which would merit us even an ounce of God's grace and mercy. And Remember, he, he was growing more and more agitated and angry as, as I was speaking to him about that. And he looked me in the face, and instead of saying something like, oh, that's okay that you believe that, or no, he looked at me and said, young man, who taught you that heresy? Who taught you that you could be justified by grace through faith alone and that your own works are not a necessary part of salvation? Well, that is the issue, is it not? The issue is, for him, was not so much, he, he understood he was a sinner, he understood he had committed sins, but he was certain that his good works and Seemingly, they were many, correct? He was there caring for his wife. He'd been faithful to her for over 50 years. He was pouring out his life for her, seemingly anyway, providing for her. And yet, he was as far from the kingdom of God as the worst murderer. He was as far from the kingdom of God as the one who's in the depths of any prison because he was seeking to come to Christ on the basis of his own merit. Even if he was saying that I'm, I'm placing that with the merit of Christ, we're putting those two together. They cannot be mixed. Our merit and the merit of Christ do not mix. We have none. And so when we come to the issue of repentance, which we will again be discussing this morning, the only verse that we will uh, spend time in is verse 17 of Matthew chapter 4, we need to understand that repentance from sin is not simply recognizing the evil we have done. It is recognizing that nothing that we do is good that none of our righteous deeds will merit us an ounce of God's grace, and they are, in fact, filthy rags. In the one side, people are relatively, in America still, are relatively quick to admit, I do commit wrong actions. And yet the flip side of that, that there is nothing that they could ever do which would merit them an ounce of grace, they will not admit. And they will not repent of their righteous deeds, those deeds that they consider to be righteous, that are earning for them at least a small amount of reward, at least certainly greater than someone else's. And so what we'll see this morning is that true repentance is a work of God in the heart. It's an essential foundation for biblical salvation, and it involves an understanding of our total unworthiness. True repentance is a work of God in the heart and an essential foundation for biblical salvation and involves our understanding of our total unworthiness. You see, our greatest need is to be rightly related to the creator of the universe, to bring glory to God by being fully satisfied in Him. And this is only possible when we truly understand our condition in relationship to a holy God. And thus, we desire the only remedy for that condition that is the person and work of Christ. In order to receive that work, we must repent. Now, where we are in our text, remember that Jesus has entered into his ministry. He has entered in through, as it were, through baptism. He has taken upon himself a sinner's baptism, although he was not a sinner. As he inaugurates his ministry, the fire, he rises from the waters, the spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove, and his father cries out, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Right after that, he is led immediately, our, our text tells us, into the wilderness, and he is tempted by the devil and he emerges victorious from that temptation, the second Adam, as it were, not failing where the first Adam did. And he overcomes all the temptations that the evil one would throw at him for that time. And Satan, it says, leaves. And in Luke, we learn that that was for an opportune time. 
He did not leave permanently, of course. And then we began looking at the ministry of the king, and that really begins in verse 12. So he's been inaugurated into his ministry. His ministry has begun, but what we learn through the chronology is that there is about a year's space of time between verse 11 of Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12. Much of that is filled in in John chapters 1 through 4. So Jesus has been ministering, but all of the synoptic gospels point to the official beginning of his preaching and teaching ministry and healing and the casting out of demons ministry as this point here, where he really has been, he has been in Judea, he's been up in the temple, he has then come back to uh, Galilee through Samaria, ministering to the Samaritan woman at the well. He has left Nazareth. He spent a little bit of time in Nazareth. He preached in the synagogue there. He's now left Nazareth and has settled in Capernaum, the indication being that that will now be, for a period of time, his new home base. And we learned last week that that was all to fulfill what? To fulfill prophecy. Jesus is not moving randomly according to simply his own whims. He's certainly moving according to his desire, and he's moving according to the perfect plan of God that is working through his mind, his will, his intellect, as the Son of God perfectly fulfills all that God would have for him, even fulfilling Old Testament prophecy about his coming and the beginning of his ministry, his preaching and teaching ministry, starting in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, which had been divided during the time of Joshua. And so it was predicted that he would begin his official ministry there, that a great light would shine upon Galilee of the Gentiles. And we talked about that, that this was the most surprising place for Jesus to begin because the Galilean Jews would have been considered to be the lowest of the rank of of the faithful, if they were faithful at all. So that's where he begins. He begins, as always, with the lowest of the low. And what message does he bring to them? That's what we will turn to this morning. What is the message that he brings to the lowest of the low? And yet, those who are still God's ethnic people, right? His chosen ethnic people, the Jews. What message will he bring to them? What will he tell them? Will he say, rejoice, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Your king is here. You're in the kingdom. Now it begins. Is that what he will say? Well, no, look at verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, and that's why we understand that this is viewed by Matthew as the official beginning of his ministry. From that time, he certainly had done preaching already. He'd already done ministry, but Matthew is now identifying with that kind of catchphrase. Here he now enters officially into his his time, his period of preaching ministry. And what is his message? The message is this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, you might, that might, those words might be ringing a bell in your mind, right? Look back at, at Matthew chapter 3. There was another one who came and gave a similar message. In fact, another one who came and gave the exact same message. That was the forerunner, the herald, John the Baptist. So Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, so now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying different location, different place, but he came in with the same method, preaching, and he came with the same message, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The exact same words. The forerunner comes and says, you need to repent. You need to recognize your sinfulness. You need to turn from your sinfulness. You need to hate your sin. You need to recognize the need for a remedy because the kingdom is here. Well, the kingdom is at hand. The king is coming. Well, now when the king actually comes, and remember, that's what the kingdom is at hand means. The king is here. The king is in the flesh. He is walking upon the earth. The kingdom is near you, Jesus would say. The kingdom is at hand. Well, now when the king comes, he comes and says the same thing. Repent. And we must understand the the grounding, the foundational understanding of repentance as the base for Jesus' message, as it was for John the Baptist in preparing the way. So Jesus comes and says, "This I continue in this with this foundation. You must repent. You have to recognize your sinfulness, otherwise you cannot enter into the kingdom. 
And as we spoke much of when we mentioned this with John the Baptist, this is a place where the world and where most Christianity today does not want to start. They want to start somewhere else. They want to start with, you need the kingdom because you are in such pain, because there's such great difficulty in your life. Listen to Christian radio. That's all you hear. Things are so hard for you, and life is difficult. And you guys, life is. You need to be redeemed, it would seem, from the difficulties, from, from how hard life is. You don't need to be redeemed from that. And in fact, becoming a believer won't do that at all. Probably it will get a lot worse before it gets better. So if you listen to enough Christian radio that says, wow, you, you need to be redeemed from the bad things in your life, from disappointment, from loneliness, that's not what you need redemption for. You need to be forgiven for your sins, which have condemned you rightfully and justly before a holy God to eternal hell. That's what you must be redeemed from. And unless you recognize that that is your state, you cannot be redeemed. And that is the great danger of covering over the true nature of repentance with a kind of, 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 uh, social and man-centered gospel, which says the real problem is not so much your sin, it's just difficulty. It's just that things are hard. And God has come to save you from how hard things are. I tell you this, He has not. He's come to save you from how hard things will be. He has come to save you from eternal hell, complete and total punishment physical punishment for all of eternity. That's the message of repentance. Turn, or you will spend all of your life, all of the rest of your life, really dying. When you die in this, in this physical body, you will then die for the rest of eternity in a spiritual body. So Jesus comes preaching the thing that is essential for salvation to be granted, and that is repentance. And as we said before, really what I'm going to do is I'm going to step through Essentially, the same things that I said when we talked about this with John. Why? Because it's in our text. So if you were wondering, do we have to hear repentance again? Yes, you do, because it's in the text. The book of Matthew brings it to us, and Matthew decided that he wanted to give the exact same message, or he wanted to record that Jesus said exactly the same thing. So I'm not going to say exactly the same thing, but it's going to be pretty close, so that we would be reminded of what true repentance is, what the kingdom is, and why and how it is that we can respond in this way. Now, Jesus, so on your outline, Jesus preaches. He comes preaching, really, this message kind of has two phases. He's preaching repentance and the kingdom. They're both tied together. So first is he preaches repentance. Just a couple of things here. Again, let us see that Jesus, it doesn't say Jesus came performing powerful dramas. Jesus came singing compelling songs. It doesn't even begin by saying Jesus ministered to the poor and hurting. He did do that. And that is part of his ministry. But what is highlighted as he begins, the foundation for everything that he did, is the truth that he proclaims. He comes preaching. And that's why you sit here this morning, isn't it? You come sitting here this morning because you want to hear preaching. You want to hear the word of, the God, word of God spoken. You want to hear it given to you in such a way that you might understand what, who God is, what he requires, how you can respond to him, how you can fulfill the very reason for which you were created, which is to be rightly related to him, satisfied in him, through a repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's why you're here. And Jesus came with that mode. He came preaching. And he preached, as we will see, with authority. He did not come suggesting. He did not come into Galilee saying, it would be nice if you did this. Won't you please do this? There's a plea certainly to repentance. We'll talk about that. We plead for men to repent. But it is much more than that. This is in the imperative. This is a command. He came commanding repentance. Why? Because this is what the king does. He commands that which is very best for his subjects as well as that which brings him glory. It is both always. 
The king does not suggest that which is good. He commands that which is good because it relates to his being glorified and it relates to the very nature of his people being able to glorify him because they have been freed from the penalty of their sin. Jesus preached, says John MacArthur, his message with certainty. He did not come to dispute or to argue, but to proclaim, to preach. Preaching is the proclamation of certainties, not the suggestion of possibilities. Jesus preached as one having authority and not as their scribes. What he proclaimed not only was certain, but it was of the utmost authority. And you understand what had happened in that day. The scribes and the Pharisees came preaching, yes, but they had so muddled the word of God with all of their own tradition that they were constantly debating back and forth about that tradition. And then, of course, that began to cause them to debate back and forth about the very word of God itself. So everything was kind of open to question, and they would throw out a a statement, and then there would be five scribes and Pharisees that would debate that. Should you really do that? How much should you actually do it? A lot like the stuff that goes on today. We throw out a suggestion to the audience, and we want them to respond back to us, say, what do you think about that? And that's what preaching has turned into in our day, where the preacher sits on a stool, and he sits around with everyone, and he kind of shares with them, and he had, they share back with him, and they kind of had a, have a dialogue about what God has said. We don't need to dialogue about what God has said. There's a place for discussion. There's a place for talking about the things of God, but we don't dialogue about what he said. He said it, we proclaim it. It is the truth. It is not to be debated. It is not something that we say, well, what do you think about that? Now, this is what it is. We proclaim repentance because this is what God has given us to say. This is his message. Matthew 7, 28 and 29, Jesus finishing the Sermon on the Mount. When he had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not their scribes. And again, it's not authority that I have. Please don't misunderstand what I said. I didn't come to say the preacher stands here and say, Chris Reiser tells you that you must do this. I don't have any authority to do that. So if I'm preaching my own words or my own opinion, then we can have a dialogue, and I'm probably going to lose most of that dialogue. So what do you think about this? Chris Reiser has an opinion. Well, Chris, that's not a very good opinion. Crush. Because a lot of you are smarter than I. You've got better opinions than I do. But when I come proclaiming the word of God, it's entirely different. It's not my authority. It's God's authority. And so I come proclaiming that to you, and that's what you must obey, not mine. That's why we lay it out, and and the interpretation of it is vital. The meaning of the Scripture is what matters, not simply that I just tell you the words. And it's open to you to know and to look and to discern whether or not that's the truth, but if it's the truth, it's God's Word, and it must be done. It's authoritative completely. This is how Jesus came. This is how John came, preaching, not dialoguing, not debating, a place for some of those things, but not when it comes to proclaiming who God is and what he's done. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, because you might think, well, maybe only Jesus and John did that. Maybe that was good for the forerunner. It's good for the herald. It was good for the king. But now when we're after the king, we don't have his same authority. Well, we don't have his authority. Well, listen to, to how the apostle Paul came in 1 Corinthians. He was an apostle, yes, one who was commissioned to preach and teach the word which, upon which the churches would be founded, but he was a man and when he came preaching, this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. There it is. We proclaim the testimony of God. That's what really matters. So I didn't come, he says, with some kind of superior speech that is worldly speech. I didn't dress it up and things that the world would say were superior or worldly ideas, which is what those at Corinth wanted some kind of worldly wisdom mixed in maybe with the teaching of the Word of God, things that the world would say, oh, that sounds wise to me. 
So I'll listen to that, and maybe we throw in a little bit about God. They'll be drawn in by the wisdom that is there, and, and maybe we'll sneak the gospel in. Now, Paul had none of that. He would have none of that. Verse 2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of spirit and power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I don't think for a moment when it says he came with weakness and fear and trembling that he came preaching less than an authoritative message. We know that to be true because the, those at Corinth will say, your message is weighty. Personally, you're not much. But your message, you preach your message with power. Well, Paul came preaching with authority, yet in and of himself, it was not arrogance and pride and, and, and a presentation of competence. Instead, it was a proclamation of the Word of God with a fear and trembling, a humility before that Word and before others. Well, this is how Jesus came. This is how the King comes. He comes preaching repentance because as we will see repentance bound up in his word of repentance is the very nature about uh, of his own sacrificial death and burial and resurrection all of that will be bound up in our understanding of what it means to repent so first a definition of repentance the word itself just to, by its etymology by the by the underlying meaning of the greek word means to turn from right really and and then additionally a change of mind it means to change from one thing to another most often involving again, a change of our mind or heart However, when we look at it in, in a bigger biblical perspective, taking the word and its base foundation in the language and then looking at it through Scripture, I think we can end with a definition, and we'll work through some of the pieces of this this morning. We can end with a definition something like this. To repent is to hate the evil of sin, to accept as right the condemnation for sin, to agree with the justice of the eternal punishment for sin, to grieve over the reality of our personal sinfulness, and to make a willful decision to turn away from sin. I know that's a lot of things, but it's all bound up in that word, what it means to turn, what it means to under... But in order to turn, you have to understand something. In order to understand something, you have to know the truth. All of that is bound up in what it means to turn. And it's not like that is some kind of complex action that takes years to undergo. How could I do all... It comes to an understanding as the word is preached. And the heart is illumined by the Spirit of God and makes a change that involves this understanding of the evil of sin and accepting as right the condemnation for sin, agreeing with the justice of eternal punishment and grieving over our sin as we willfully turn from it. John MacArthur again says, Repentance was and has continued to be the first demand of the gospel, the first requirement of salvation, the first element of the saving work of the Spirit in the soul. So now let's look at the act of repentance. That was the definition. Now let's look at the act. How is this possible? Because if I've given you that that full of a definition, you're like, no man on his own could decide that. You look at that's impossible. No man could turn to God like that, could recognize those things about sin, could grieve in any kind of reality over his own sin, and could willfully turn from it. It's impossible. You're right. And that's the foundation of repentance. A fundamental understanding of what it means to repent is that repentance is a gift from God. The radical change necessary for repentance to take place cannot happen apart from the work of God. Man must exercise his will in repentance, but the ability to do so is a gift from God. Several verses there. 2 Timothy 2.25. As Paul is speaking to Timothy about those who are disobeying in the church at Ephesus, he says, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. There you have it. They knew the truth with their heads. He was telling them the truth. They needed repentance that they might 
actually understand. And in order to receive repentance, it says this is something that God grants. So it says, Timothy, you work with them, you tell them the truth, you point out their sin, you, you show them the way that they ought to go, and you pray that God will grant them repentance, that their hearts will be changed, and that they will turn and follow that biblical truth that you are giving them. And it goes on to say, so that they will escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. They will come to their senses, is what he says there. Well, this is a gift of God. Acts eleven eighteen. When Peter is recalling what happened to, uh, at Cornelius' house when the Gentiles were granted salvation. It says, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. This is a gift of God. It is something that in His grace He bestows upon us so that we might recognize the nature of the truth, our own sinful condition, and desire to turn. Because Ephesians 2 is clear that no man on his own will do that. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. No ability to respond spiritually. God breaks in through the power of the Spirit of God, working through the truth of the Word of God proclaimed, changes the heart so that the first response is, I'm evil! I'm sinful. I'm condemned. I'm on my way to eternal hell. I deserve this. What do I do? And then there's a crying out to God as that truth is presented through the Word of God. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online And we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.